0: This is the Book of Mormon Digging Deeper. I'm your host, Mark Swint. this is the first episode of this new podcast series, The Book of Mormon Digging Deeper, I'd like to tell you why I'm making these episodes. I've been distressed as I've seen many good members of the Church let their testimonies waver and falter over political and social and historical issues that really have nothing to do with whether or not the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. The Book of Mormon has always been considered the keystone of our religion, primarily because of the simple fact that if it is authentic, then the story of Moroni visiting Joseph Smith and the Golden Plates is true. The story of Joseph Smith seeing the Father and the Son in the first vision is true, and the whole foundational aspect of this gospel is complete. For that reason, I'd like to take you on a journey through some of the things in the Book of Mormon that have built my testimony to such an extreme extent. Now, I understand that we are not to base our testimony on an intellectual conversion of the gospel, and indeed I have no desire to do that today. However, understanding and knowing that the testimonies are born of the Holy Ghost, I do know that we are encouraged continually to strengthen our testimonies through study and meditation and prayer. So, I believe that these podcasts may give you interesting and fascinating things to study and ponder and pray about. I hope that's the case. I hope you enjoy them. Stick with me. I'll do the best I can to provide things for you that you may have never seen before in the Book of Mormon. Now, Before we begin, I would like to ask you to keep in mind and to ponder two important questions. Number one, why do we even have the Book of Mormon in the first place? I mean, it seems producing the Book of Mormon was an awful lot of work early on for a young man such as Joseph Smith. He was just 14 years old when he first told a minister that he had seen the Father and the Son in a heavenly vision and thus began his lifelong effort to build a church. He was just 17 when he proclaimed that an angel named Moroni had visited him in his room one night and revealed to him the existence and location of some golden plates. 17! He was still a kid. And once he told the world about the plates, he was then on the hook to eventually produce a book. Now, that's an awfully big project for someone unschooled and uneducated to take on. People were starting churches all over the place, and none of them needed a special book. And nobody minded that they were starting churches. It was the thing to do. Today, there are thousands of Christian churches, and nobody seems to mind. So, if Joseph Smith were embarking on a long con, a fraud, a scam... Why go to the trouble and effort to produce a book like the Book of Mormon in the first place? Why not just get on with starting a church and proclaim himself a prophet like so many others had done? The second question. Just what did the Book of Mormon bring to the table in the first place? How did it help his effort? The most distinctive feature of this new young church was the fact that Joseph Smith taught that the Father and the Son were not a noncorporeal being without body parts or passions, as the doctrine of the Trinity proclaimed, but instead had bodies as tangible as man's and that we were indeed created in their image. And that was something that he said from the very first day, back in 1820 three years before he said anything about the golden plates. Once the book was finally published in 1830, fully ten years later, it didn't at first flush provide any substantial new foundation for any startling new doctrines upon which to build a church. It was not the source book for all kinds of weird and strange teachings. In fact, One of the first things the early members of the church did was form a school of the prophets in order to, among other things, study this new book and see just what it contained. Certainly there were gems within its pages, but these took time to glean out, and they were not the starting point for this brash young man who proclaimed himself a prophet. The bottom line is this it would have been so much easier to start a church without the Book of Mormon and without all the persecution that came with it. If Joseph had just one day said that he had begun having visions, he would have found plenty of followers seeking the enlightenment that he would have offered. Now, let's go through this book over the next while and see what we have in there. I believe I can show you many fascinating things about the Book of Mormon that you may have never seen or pondered before. Ah, but where to start? Tell me how do we begin this tragic tale when centuries of fear and hate have left a bloody trail Will there come a time we'll live to see when the sins of our fathers and mothers will cease to be? And can we find a way That clip was from Dennis DeYoung, the founder and lead singer of the rock band Styx. The song is 100 Years From Now, And as I listen to it, I can't help but think about Mormon and what he must have felt when he sat down to begin abridging the records of a thousand-year history of his people. Every epic has to begin somewhere. And for the Book of Mormon, that somewhere is 600 B.C. It begins in Jerusalem, during the reign of Zedekiah, the king installed by Nebuchadnezzar to rule over the land of Palestine, while Palestine was still an Egyptian territory. There are many out there who think Joseph Smith did not actually translate the Book of Mormon from golden plates, but rather concocted, made up, fabricated the book from an overactive imagination and a mendacious mindset. They believe he wrote the Book of Mormon as part of an elaborate and well-thought-out scheme to create a church and bamboozle the public into worshiping him as a false prophet. Well, I guess everybody is entitled to their own opinion. But let me ask you this question. If he were to fake a story about ancient Egypt and ancient Palestine, why would he start in 600 B.C., right in the middle of the book of Jeremiah in the Bible? I mean, there is a dark period in the biblical history, right after Malachi in 450 B.C., and lasting until the advent of the Savior at the meridian of time. There is this whole 450-year period where we have very few records. From the book of Josephus, we learned of the Maccabean Revolution and the great change that came over the Jewish faith, converting it from a Levitical priest-administered religion to a rabbi-administered one. But other than that, the slate is pretty clean. In a blank period like that, a clever author could create any sort of story he wanted. You see, that's the safe time to start telling your story, because you could have fabricated any setting you wanted, you could have fabricated any circumstance you wanted, and you could have created any sort of action that you wanted, and no one could dispute your account, because there's no records. But no... The Book of Mormon starts in 600 B.C. It says during the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, Joseph Smith, or Nephi, was very precise about that, the first year. So, 600 B.C., what is it about that year? It is so precise and even, not 623 or 587, but 600 B.C., exactly. Well, as I said, that was the year Zedekiah was installed by Nebuchadnezzar to become the king of Judah. And though the people didn't know it at the time, that was the start of the steady and inexorable takeover and ultimate destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian king. But 600 BC has a much broader reach than just for the people of Jerusalem. The German philosopher Karl Jasper, not in any way associated with the church, wrote a book in German in which he called 600 B.C. the pivotal year. In fact, that was the title of his book. H.G. Wells, the great science fiction writer, compiled a massive work called The History of the World, in which he also refers to 600 B.C. as the time when everything changed. So to tell the story of how and why The Book of Mormon begins when it does and where it does. Let's find out why that was a pivotal year. Let's see why everything changed. Now, to tell you the story of how and why the Book of Mormon begins where it does, I've got to not only tell you the story, I've got to give you the setting, give you the build up to that event. I don't want to get too bogged down in details and history, but nothing happens in a vacuum. And that includes especially world events, political upheavals, and wars. And when we talk of political upheavals and conflicts, there is probably no other land in the world as hotly contested over as Palestine, which includes the land of Jerusalem. It's not surprising, really, when you consider that the oldest part of the city was settled in the fourth millennium BC, making Jerusalem one of the oldest cities in the world. That's sixth thousand years of more or less continuous habitation. Any city with a history that old is going to have seen its share of invaders, and Jerusalem has certainly seen more than its share. The city has been attacked 52 times, captured and recaptured 44 times. It was besieged 23 times, and it was destroyed twice. The first identifiable name and mention for the town, or city if you wish, was recorded as Rusalimim in an Egyptian document called the Execration Texts. I'm not sure where they got the name Rusalimim, because the root of the name in the text was SLM. And you should know that in Egyptian they do not use vowels. So when we find a group of consonants, It's up to the archaeologists and the historians to enter the vowels to fill out the word. To me, it seems a no-brainer that the addition of an A and an E would fit very nicely and make it Salem. In Arabic, we read Salam for peace, and in Hebrew, the word is Shalom. Again, cognate with Salem. The first thing we need to know about Salem is that Melchizedek, was both the high priest after the order of the Most High God and the king over the city and the surrounding kingdom at the time of Abraham. That was about 2100 B.C. By 1400 B.C., the city was called uru salem that's U-R-U-Salem, according to the Amarna tablets. By the time David and his army entered the city around 1005 B.C., It was known both as Urusalem and Jebus because it was the city and dwelling place of the Jebusites. David's victorious takeover of the city permanently established the name Jerusalem or Jerusalem. There are various interpretations for the prefix Jeru to include the way, the city of, and the place of peace. From the time of David's occupation of Jerusalem also called the City of David, other kingdoms began their campaigns to capture it in earnest. Primary among these were the Persians, the Babylonians, the Syrians, and the Assyrians. Now let me give you just a brief rundown on the high points of the history. After David's death, his son Solomon ruled faithfully for a number of years. He was known far and wide for his wisdom, and his land grew in wealth and prosperity enormously. This engendered jealousy from a number of outside forces who desired the land and the riches it held for themselves. But no one dared attack while Solomon was alive, as he was the most powerful ruler in the region. However, the Egyptian pharaoh Shashank I embarked on the long game. His plan was to offer his daughter as a wife to Solomon, who already had a great many wives and even more concubines. That way, he could ingratiate himself into the inner circle and await the day of opportunity. His daughter's name was Mikara, and Solomon was captivated by her. He ended up building her a magnificent palace, now considered one of the three great edifices he erected. The temple, his own palace, and the palace of Mikara. Shashank was a patient man, and his patience paid off. Once Solomon died, he decided to make his move. Solomon had left the kingdom to his son Rehoboam. However, Rehoboam was a foolish king who quickly made a habit of rejecting the wise counsel of the elders who had served with Solomon. And because of this, there was a revolt in the land. This is when the northern kingdom was broken off from Judah. This northern kingdom, commonly referred to as the Lost Ten Tribes, was led by Jeroboam, a servant of Solomon, and the son of a widow named Nebat. You can read about this in 1 Kings 12. And by the way, Jeroboam was no angel either, and ultimately, he was killed. At that time, the Lord commanded Ahijah the prophet to step in and take charge of the northern kingdom and lead them away to the north. This, then, gave Shashank a great excuse to invade Jerusalem and sack the temple, which is exactly what he did. He sacked the temple, and he took all of the incredible wealth that was in it. He took all of it back to Heliopolis, which today is part of Cairo, being a district of that huge city. Heliopolis was where Abraham had taught astronomy to the pharaohs way back in 2100 BC. Heliopolis is where Moses grew up. It was a very important place. Heliopolis had a temple that was very important as well. So this is where Shishak took all of the wealth that he stole from Solomon's kingdom. A couple of generations later, there was a revolt in Egypt, and Take-A-Lot II tried to take the kingdom from his father, the pharaoh, Take-A-Lot I. This was the opportunity the Assyrians had been waiting for, to come in and try to get Jerusalem for themselves, which they did in about 722 B.C. They took Jerusalem, having already grabbed the rest of Judea. Assyria moved into the rest of Egypt with the help of Taharqa, a Nubian prince and a great ruler, but he quickly broke alliance with Assyria and started the 25th dynasty in Egypt by taking over Thebes and Memphis, which was very near Heliopolis. You don't hear much about Thebes anymore. That was the ancient name, Today, it is known by the much more common and famous name of Luxor, home of the Valley of the Kings, and so many astounding archaeological discoveries. Work continues there to this day, and will for a long time to come. Anyway, Taharqa's reign as Pharaoh of Egypt lasted from 690 BC down to 664 BC. See, we're moving through this pretty quickly. But things went back and forth with the Assyrians, who still wanted the land and they invaded again in 673 B.C., and then once more in 671 B.C. The man driving that invasion was a man named Necho, and just like Taharqa, he also broke alliance with the Assyrians and became a pharaoh, pharaoh Necho I, after Taharqa's death. A year later, he was driven out by an Assyrian general, Esarhaddon, but was restored to the throne once again after allying himself once more to Assyria. Necho I was followed by his son Semiticus I, who came in and united all of the Nile Delta by getting all the tribal chiefs together. Semiticus, under pressure from the Assyrians, decided to join with them, and they made him the king. Emboldened with this alliance, Assyria then tried to plunder Thebes, but failed, and it cost them a lot of money, and they never came back and that led to the fading of that kingdom. Soon they were attacked by the Medeans from Crete and the Persians and the Babylonians, and they were finally all but destroyed by 622 BC. And now we're only talking 22 years prior to the beginning of the Book of Mormon. By the way, the Persians were under the guidance of Cyrus I, and the Babylonians were under the guidance of Nebopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar. Pharaoh Necho, by the way, was a warrior and the book of 2 Kings states that he met King Josiah, leader of Judea, on the plains of Megiddo and killed him. But when he returned to Egypt, he found that the Judeans had already selected Jehoiahaz to succeed Josiah. Necho had him deposed and replaced him with Jehoiakim, that's in Second Kings 23, and so he brought Jehoiahaz back to Egypt where he met, it is said, an unhappy and untimely death. Incidentally, this plain of Megiddo, where the battle took place, is the site more commonly known to us as Armageddon. The word Armageddon comes from the original Har Megiddo, which means mountain of Megiddo. And interestingly, there is no Har Megiddo. There is no mountain. There are the plains of Megiddo, so I'm not sure what to make of that. The plain of Megiddo is about 75 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, all of this time, the Babylonian king was planning on reasserting his power in Assyria. That's King Nebopolassar, the father of Nebuchadnezzar. He captured a town called Kamuk, which cut off the Egyptian army that was based in another town called Carchemish. Necho didn't like that at all, so he responded by retaking Kamuk after a four-month siege and he executed the whole Babylonian garrison. Well, Nebuchadnezzar gathered another army, which camped at Kutamati on the Euphrates. However, Nebuchadnezzar's poor health forced him to return to Babylon in 605. In response, the Egyptians attacked the leaderless Babylonians who fled their position. So at this point, the old Nebuchadnezzar passed command of his army to Nebuchadnezzar the name we all know, who led them to a very decisive victory over the Egyptians at Carchemish in 605, and then pursued the fleeing survivors all the way to another town called Hamath. Necho's dream of restoring the Egyptian empire in the Middle East, as had occurred under the New Kingdom, was destroyed when Nebuchadnezzar conquered Egyptian territory from the Euphrates all the way to the Brook of Egypt. That's what they say in Jeremiah 46, the brook of Egypt, all the way down to Judea. This left Necho greatly weakened, and the Egyptians were barely able to repel the Babylonian attack on their eastern border in 601 BC. The land of Jerusalem was in the middle of this tug-of-war, and all of these entities wanted a piece of it. There was tremendous tension in the land, and it is in this setting that we arrive at the time of Lehi and his family. Now we're down to the second pharaoh of the 26th dynasty, Pharaoh Necho II. He ruled from 610 BC to approximately 595 BC, right during that time of Lehi and his family. Now, these are all ancient cities and names and not Particularly important, other than you need to get a feel for the political drama in these times because this is all right there. Lehi is alive at this time. Nephi, Sam, Laman, Lemuel, they're all alive while this is happening, while Babylonia is trying to lay siege to Jerusalem. So we get down to 601 BC. And let me give you this just to kind of fill in a better picture of the kind of place that Lehi was living in. Nebuchadnezzar, after the siege of Jerusalem, installed his own king of Judah, just the Judean part known as the land of Jerusalem. He installed a guy named Matanyahu, or Mataniah, depending on how you read it, and changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was installed as the king of Judah. He was born between 618 and 620 B.C., William Albright, the archaeologist, says that Zedekiah's reign started in 598 BC, and that was the accepted thinking in 1830 when Joseph Smith presented the Book of Mormon, which said that the book started at the first year of Zedekiah, 600 BC. And that was the accepted thinking in 1830. But we've now got later archaeological evidence showing that the year was actually 600 BC. And remember... Nephi is very specific about the fact that his story starts in the first year of the reign of King Zedekiah. In fact, 1 Nephi 1 verse 4 says, in the commencement of the first year of the reign of King Zedekiah. So here's what happened. Zedekiah became the king of Judah, and within the first year, he revolted against Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who had just installed him as king. It just shows how unfaithful people were and how, dynamic we'll say, the politics of the region were at the time. Nebuchadnezzar was understandably very upset with this, and he created great unrest in the land all about. It was a very, very turbulent time in Egypt. Everybody was in danger. You didn't know if it was the Persians that were going to attack. You didn't know if it was the Babylonians that were going to attack. You didn't know if, whether the Egyptian army was going to come in and somehow question your loyalty and attack as well. It was not a good time to be in Judea and Palestine and in Jerusalem. And it was against this backdrop that we finally encounter Lehi and his family. So let's go right to his story. Lehi was not a prophet. During his his regular life, he was a merchant. He was a trader, and he was very successful. Hugh Nibley says he was a very wealthy trader. We know that he had wealth because he sent his sons back to Laban with all of their gold and silver and all of their other precious things that they had. We know that when they originally left Jerusalem, they left their gold and their silver and their precious things in their home and headed out into the desert. Now, Lehi, as the story begins, is out doing his work. He's out away, wandering about, and the conditions of Jerusalem are heavy on his mind. He sets to praying, and he has this vision from the Lord. He sees marvelous and wonderful things. He returns to the land of Jerusalem, to his home, so we know that he was out and about, trading in the desert, probably among the great caravan routes that came through there. He came home and had a greater vision, and that vision is what sent him out into the streets preaching about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. Well, this was a dangerous thing to do because he was, in effect, preaching against Zedekiah the king. Now, Zedekiah had enlisted Jeremiah the prophet to be his advisor, but Jeremiah was giving Zedekiah the same advice that Lehi was giving out in the streets. And Zedekiah didn't like what he was hearing. The Book of Mormon says there were many prophets who came and were preaching. The Lord was extending every opportunity he could devise to get the people to wake up and realize and see the impending destruction that was coming upon them. Well, Zedekiah was upset with Jeremiah, and Lehi was out there in the streets preaching. In essence, preaching against Zedekiah. So it was a very, very dangerous time for him. And at one point, the Lord said, You know what? Gather up the family and get out into the desert. And that's where we get the beginning of the Book of Mormon. Now, we've talked quite a bit about the history leading up to the start of the Book of Mormon, but I still think there is more as to what made 600 BC specifically the pivotal year the year that changed everything. So let me get to that now. I said at the outset of this episode that Jerusalem had had a very turbulent history. I mentioned that it had been attacked 52 times. It was under attack this time as well. Maybe not with swords and arrows at the moment, but Babylon was truly at the gate. However, this was, in the eyes of most of the people, just another in a series of very unfortunate events in the history of the great city. I said that Jerusalem had been besieged 23 times, but Nebuchadnezzar had just finished besieging the city only a few years earlier in 605 B.C., and the people had survived that. So what made this time different? How did everything change this time? Well, I also said that Jerusalem had been destroyed twice. However, in 600 B.C., it had not ever been destroyed, not twice and not even once. They had always survived. But this time was different. This time Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar was going to come in and destroy the city and take the Jews in it away to Babylon as slaves. Historical dates and records vary, But the Babylonian captivity lasted approximately 60 years, and the Jews' salvation came not at the hands of the Egyptian army or through a mighty rebellion of their own making. Rather, another turning point in history was in the making, and it had a very great significance for the Jews. Persia was rising in power, and a young man, born ironically in 600 B.C., rose to become Cyrus the Great. He turned Persia into a great empire during his reign, which lasted approximately 30 years, from 560 B.C. to 530 B.C. As he grew his empire, he adopted a remarkable philosophy. He chose to respect the customs and the religions of the lands he conquered. This became a very successful model for him and his kingdom, and established a government that worked to the advantage and profit of all of its subjects. During his reign, the Persians conquered the Babylonian Empire, and the captive Jews became his property. The Edict of Restoration was a proclamation in which Cyrus authorized and encouraged the return of the Israelites to their home in the land of Israel. Now, not only did he initiate the return of the Jews to Israel, but he also felt it was essential that they rebuild their temple. As such, he sent along architects and builders to assist in that effort. According to the Bible, God anointed Cyrus for this task, even referring to him as a Messiah with a lowercase m. Cyrus is the only non-Jewish figure in the Bible to be revered in this capacity. Isaiah 45, verse 1 says, Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings, to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Cyrus brought salvation to the Jews but not for another 60 years after Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem. It was a remarkable event in history and one not to be repeated. It did not, however, negate the fact that Jerusalem was, in fact, destroyed only a few years after Lehi and Ishmael and their families fled into the desert. And in fact, that destruction occurred while they were still traveling in the wilderness. There's just tons and tons of history here, but the important thing that you need to understand or that you need to ponder, I should say, I invite you to ponder, is this, the Book of Mormon. If you are one of those people that believes Joseph Smith made up the Book of Mormon, you have to acknowledge then that by some unbelievable stroke of good fortune and extraordinary luck, Joseph Smith happened to pick a time and a setting that was in fact regarded by all later historians as the pivotal time in the history of Egypt and in the history of Jerusalem, and for that matter, a large component in the history of the world. This was the pivotal time when everything changed. Now, we haven't even talked about the switch from the sacral kingship to a political kingship, the sacral kingship being where the king was considered divine and holy and was ordained of God. This was something that existed in Europe much, much longer than in Egypt. Right at this time, with Necho II, the whole thing changed from sacral kingship to just plain old political might. Military leaders became pharaohs and things of that sort. This was the time, if ever there was a time, that a wealthy, successful businessman With a family and a home and possessions and lands and herds of goats and sheep and camels and everything else would just up and leave. There was no other time in the history of Jerusalem when the political situation would have been so dire as to drive a successful family such as Lehi's into one of the most dangerous deserts in the world a desert, by the way, which was not crossed by any Westerner on foot until 1936. It was an absolutely deadly place. And yet somehow, that's exactly when, according to skeptics of Joseph Smith, he arbitrarily decided to begin the Book of Mormon epic. What a lucky guess on his part, I guess. Because, as it turns out, that was the perfect place to start the story. Exactly in 600 BC. Now, keep in mind, almost none of this history that I have shared with you today was known in 1830. But if you will follow this podcast, you will see that we're going to cover many fascinating and extraordinary elements of the Book of Mormon, facts that are not openly apparent at first flush. But with a little digging, I believe the pages will reveal their precious secrets to us. I will continue to dig, and hopefully we can learn together the many wonderful treasures that lie within its pages. But for the people of 1830, without the benefit of mountains of archaeological and other research, many of those things we're going to learn were not readily apparent. And in the first days of the church, the founders studied diligently to figure out what they had with this book. The early church was little more than a collection of devoted Protestants with this very strange and unique book. It seems to me that Joseph Smith, if he were faking this whole thing, would have been much better served if he had come out with a book of teachings that he could claim were given to him directly by God. You see, that way he could impose his own personal views on an accepting audience, and they would still... Hold him up to be a prophet. But instead, he published a book appearing to be an ancient history of an unknown people in an unknown land. It just doesn't seem very efficient. I want you to know that I value my testimony of the Book of Mormon. I know that it is true, that it is authentic, that no man alive, not just Joseph Smith, the greatest historian on earth, could not have written it. Not Herodotus nor Plato, nor Pliny the Elder. None could have come up with the story of the Book of Mormon had it not been true. None could have filled it so full of culture and politics and intrigue as the Book of Mormon has. And I invite you to remember that in 1830, none of this history that I shared with you was known. Oh, the Bible had little bits of it in Kings and Chronicles and in Jeremiah, but it was and is very, very hard to pull out very, very hard to piece together. Not until much later archaeological discoveries were made was the picture made clear. And yet, the Book of Mormon gives us the most fascinating view of these times. Consider that. Ponder it. Pray about it. Apply Moroni's promise as found in Moroni 10. I promise you the Lord will manifest the truthfulness of it unto you By the power of the Holy Ghost. For by the power of the Holy Ghost is all truth manifest. Until next time, I'm Mark Swind. Thanks for listening.